0: You may be seated. That was a fast song. It was, sorry. That's good. Oh, no, you're fine. Last time I had too many verses. In it. Had, Jesus me. It like nine verses. There, there, you go. there you go. My grandfather would often tell me, too many times, he would tell me, smile. It's your job to make other people happy. And I thought to myself, what? I can't make other people happy. I can't make other people smile. I can't make someone be happy. You're smiling, and I'm not happy. But there's something to our responsibility as a Christian to try to ease the pain of others. There's something about our role as Christians to try to help people who have some sort of need. And in a way, when we do that, because there are people that are suffering, they're suffering for different reasons. They're going through different crises in life. And if we're able to help them, maybe we can help them smile. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about our responsibility to help those in need. And sometimes we miss the import of <laughs> excuse me, of what Jesus is saying here. But I want us to think about what Jesus says in Matthew 25. I want us to think about the root of Matthew chapter 25 and the related biblical principles that we see there. I want us to think about this morning limits of what we can or should do as Christians. And then I want us to think about specific opportunities or things that we can do to be ready to help. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning to Matthew chapter 25. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 25, I want you to notice what's going on in this context. In Matthew chapter 24, the context begins. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is is coming out of the temple. Uh, And and Herod had this tremendous building project, and it still wasn't finished in Jesus' day. They were still working on it. And so they're coming out of the temple complex, and and as they come out, uh, Matthew 24 verse 1 says... The disciples point all these things out to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And then notice verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they asked Jesus three questions. When are these things going to take place? And Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and in Matthew chapter 25 is answering these questions. When are these things going to take place? When is the temple going to be destroyed, that is? Uh, When is the the time of your coming? Uh, And when is the end of the age? And Jesus is answering these questions in in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 24. So, notice first of all, he, says, he answers the idea of those days. When is the temple going uh, to be torn down? Uh, and he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 19, and also verse 22, these days are among us, okay? Uh, those things are coming. They'll be coming shortly. And then in Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 through 35, Jesus begins to answer the question of when is your coming? When are you going to come? Uh, and Jesus. There refers to Daniel chapter 7. Now, some of you have heard me talk about Daniel chapter 7 uh, at other times. In Daniel chapter 7, the vision that Daniel has is that one, like the Son of Man, coming to the Ancient of Days. That's another way of saying God. The Son of Man is coming to God in the clouds. And then the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom. So when Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming, Uh, On the clouds here, in this part of Matthew chapter 24, he's talking about when he's going to go to his father and receive a kingdom. A lot of people turn that around and think it's the other way. Uh, But Jesus stresses that point. He spends some time on it. Verse 33, he says, You're going to recognize some things happening and realize when you see this, that the kingdom's right there, that the Son of Man is coming uh, uh, to the Ancient of Days. He says in verse 34, this generation will not pass away before that happens. And so Jesus is saying, this is going to be happening soon. But then he begins to talk about the end of the age. Notice that verse 36. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day, he says, verse 36, of that day no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You see, Jesus has just been talking about how to anticipate Him coming to receive His kingdom. But in verse 36, He says, But of that day, nobody knows. Not even the Son of Man knows. Then He says, a verse or two later, uh, He says, uh, The Son of Man will come in glory with His angels at a time when no one thinks that He will. And so, in this coming, or the coming of the age, Jesus has in mind, perhaps, uh, the end of all things, and the coming judgment. And so that rolls us in to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, And he's preparing them for that day. And he does that with a couple parables. The first parable is the parable of ten virgins. And remember that story. He says there's five virgins. They have their their lamps with oil ready to go. But five of the virgins don't. They've kind of wasted their oil, I guess. And his point is, be ready. And then he tells the parable of 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 the talents. Remember that story. There's a guy that has five talents. There's a man that has two talents. There's a guy that has one talent. The the guys with five and two talents, they go out and and they do something with those talents. They produce fruit with those talents so that when the master comes back, the king, when Jesus comes back, they have more that they can hand over to the king. But the guy with one talent, remember, he just went and buried his. He, He put his in the bank. Didn't do anything with it. And when the king comes back, he didn't have anything to show for it. The point is Jesus is using these parables to say when He comes back. When you answer that question, what will be the end of the age be like? Or when will be the end of the age? He says, nobody knows. You better be ready. And it's within that context then of Jesus talking about that last day that we come to our text for today, which is in verse 31. Notice what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous one will answer the Lord, When did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, when you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and you did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to one of these, least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As we look at this section, Jesus is saying, here's a criteria for judgment. Remember, the question is, when will be the coming of, uh, uh, of the age? Answer yeah, so that, saying, no one really knows when that's going to be, so you better be ready. And he tells these parables of being ready. And then he says, and by the way, one of the standards of judgment that I will use on that day is how did you help others? How did you help others? Did you feed the sick or feed the, the hungry? Did you... Give something to drink to those who are thirsty. Did you, did you clothe the naked? Did you visit those in prison? And did you notice Jesus said, to one of these brethren of mine, to one of these brothers of mine, we have an obligation to each other. When we ha- see a need that one another has, Jesus says, you need to take care of that need. It's not just going to be, did you do some miracles? Did you do some great preaching? Remember, Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples here. His 12 disciples have asked him these questions and they've come to him privately asking him to explain what he meant as they were leaving the temple. And so he's talking to his 12 disciples and he's not saying it doesn't depend on on how many nations uh, you convert or how many other things you do. I want to know, are you caring for other folks? Are you being compassionate and helping other folks? The result of the judgment is eternal fate. Will you go to eternal destruction or to eternal life? As we look at Matthew chapter 25, there are some principles of helping that we see in this passage. Number one, what do we do, what we do to others, Jesus takes personally. Did you notice that? The question on both sides is, when did we see you hungry and feed you or not feed you? When did we see you thirsty and not give you something to drink or give you something to drink? When did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? When were you sick? And we did or didn't do these things. And Jesus takes his answer back to when you did or didn't do it for the least of these, for one of these brothers of mine. Jesus takes it personally when we hang our brethren out to dry and we have an opportunity to help or serve. Secondly, what we see from this passage is that helping others is a matter of eternal life or punishment. If we have no other motivation to, to help others, we ought to do it for our self-preservation when we have those opportunities. How we treat others is a matter of God's judgment. When we know someone needs help and we have the means to help and we don't help them, that's a matter of judgment. A third principle that I suggest that we see here is is that helping others is directly related to our relationship with God. The righteous are those who keep a relationship with God. That word righteousness comes from a Greek word that means to be in a right relationship. He calls these folks the righteous. There's something about their relationship with God that spurs them to help. It ties us to God. And we'll see in a few minutes... Something about God that tells us that's who He is, and if that's who He is, that's who we ought to be as well. And so we see these principles for helping in these sections. Uh, when did you see when did we see you, Lord, when you saw one of the least of these? Both groups have an interest in seeing the Lord. Both wanted to be with Jesus, but one turned a blind eye when there were those that were in need, and the other didn't. There is something about Jesus which is tied to helping others. When we begin to look at some related passages, we see why this is the case. Notice for instance Deuteronomy chapter 10. If you flip over in your Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is God, of course, talking to Israel. <coughs> but I want you to notice what what God says to them here. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and the statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God... To your Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all the peoples as it is to this day. So circumcise your hearts and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, verse 19, so show your love for the alien for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve him and cling to him and you shall swear by his name. Did you notice that connection that Moses makes here? He says, this is who God is. God cares for the widow. God cares for the orphan. God cares for the alien. What do all three of those things have in common? They have little protection. They are susceptible to abuse from others. And they need help. And God has compassion for them. And he says, just as God has compassion on these folks, you should too, as his people Israel. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 25 and we see Jesus saying, here's how you ought to act, we're talking about the same God. He has a concern for those who are weak, for those who are susceptible to abuse from others, to those who are in need and can't care for themselves and he wants us to care for those folks just as he would our blessings can be a source of God's help for others notice what paul says in second corinthians chapter 8 verses 13 through 14 and remember as you're turning to second corinthians chapter 8 as i mentioned this morning in bible class paul here in this context is reminding these corinthians that they had already promised to help the church in judea financially To overcome a famine that they were facing in Judea. But notice what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 through 14, speaking of their financial gift. He says, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. In other words, Paul is saying, look, Corinthian church, you have an abundance, you have a surplus, and God is going to use your surplus in your abundance to take care of those, those Christians in Judea who are struggling in this famine. And God uses that as a way to care for the need of our brethren, even as far as as they were by mileage. We need to remember, as we look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, that we have an obligation to help our brethren. Notice what Paul says there, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, So then, while we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. We have an obligation to help. When we can. And yet, even though we have an obligation to help uh, when we can, we, there are also limits to our helping. I want us to think about some of the limitations we see in Scripture. First of all, everyone should recognize that God expects men to labor for their food. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, when God is cursing the man, uh, and He says, uh, you will now toil and work until the day that you die. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he says. You don't get to live in the paradise anymore or the garden. You're going to have to work to care for your family. And so men have an obligation to make sure that their family is cared for. When we look in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 13, and Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, we see that, that work is a blessing for God. He says, the man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, all the days of his life. It is a gift of God. And again, the sleep of the working man is pleasant. When you work and you know that you are caring for your family, you see the produce of, your, uh, of the labor that you do, that's a gift from God, Solomon says. And so we need to understand that we have a responsibility to work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 11 and 2, uh, Paul tells us uh, that he worked... Uh, to avoid becoming dependent on others, and, and, and Christians ought to do that as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 2. And to make your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. We have an obligation as Christians to work. Notice what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. God wants us to work to provide for ourselves. And there are some folks that, that do just the best they can. But there are some folks that don't do much of anything. As we think again about 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12, Paul tells us that God wants us to give according to what we have, not what we don't have. and so that's a limitation for us and we need to realize that you know when, when we don't have the means, God doesn't expect us to help when we can't. Jesus himself recognized that the gospel had to take a priority over those who are just looking for bread in John chapter 6 verses 26 through 27, You remember the crowds are following Jesus and they're they're asking for bread and bread and bread and bread. And and Jesus says, I truly, truly, I say to you, you did not come seeking uh, 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 a sign from God. You did not come seeking the Messiah. You came to seek bread. And he chastises the group for that. A little bit uh, uh, later in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 14 and verse 7, you remember the woman is washing Jesus' feet uh, with perfume. And Judas says to, in that context, you know what, this is very expensive perfume. We could have sold this and given it to the poor. And Jesus' comment there in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, is you always have the poor with you. Jesus makes the gospel a, a priority. And remember, Jesus also says in Luke chapter 15 and verse 9, the, or verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's the mission of the church is to seek and save the lost, not a ministry of humanitarianism. But with that being said, God wants us to help. God wants us to serve and to help those who are in need. And so that's what we ought to do. One other passage that, that uh, we need to uh, bear in mind that I skipped over was Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. And I go back to this just because there's an important principle here that we're going to look at in just a second. Notice what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 28, he says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Did you catch that? Work with your own hands so that you're able to share with one who has need. And so that leads us to ask the question, what can we do? What can we do? as Christians today. The first thing I would suggest to you is consider your financial surpluses. And think about what Paul says in Corinthians. Think about what he says in Ephesians. The surpluses that God has given us allow us to be able to help people in times of need. That doesn't mean all of your surpluses all of the time, you're just going out and, and, and giving to folks. But think about when a hurricane hits. Think about when a tornado hits. Think about when someone close to you finally uh, realizes, finds themselves in a hospital. No, I'm not looking at you, Paul. Or there's a real crisis in somebody's life. Doesn't it feel good to be able to help them a little bit with that need? But well, you see, a lot of times what we do as Americans is buy the biggest house possible. We buy the fanciest car possible. We buy the fanciest clothes possible. We do everything as big as possible, right? Nothing is bigger in Texas. Nothing's bigger than Texas, right? Everything's big in Texas. And we get done, we look around, and we think, huh, where did the paycheck go? We ought to think about trying to live within our means. And as Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 there, trying to have something to set aside so that you can help those truly in need. And so the first thing that we do is consider our financial surpluses. And that's kind of subjective. It's going to be different for everybody in terms of what that is and what you're able to do. But remember Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, God doesn't expect you to give what you don't have. But if you have a surplus, be prepared to use that to help someone who truly has need. Secondly, we need to have a mindset of help in terms of sacrifice of time. Helping doesn't always come at a convenient time, right? Uh, and we need to understand that in our families and individually, right? Uh, just as we think about the example of, of a hurricane, if we were able to take a group to Houston last year, That's not a a two-hour trip, right? That's a sacrifice of time. Sometimes in our families we realize, hey, a family member needs to go and help somebody else. That's a sacrifice of time. And so we need to understand those things. Know your abilities and your limitations. We all have different different abilities, uh, and I can't help in the same way. Wouldn't it be great to have a medical mission team in this congregation? We have some folks that can do that, Uh, you know, one of our members who's working all the time we never see is a nurse. We have doctors and nurses here. Uh, Would you want them to be on the medical mission team or would you want me to be on the medical mission team, all right? If we're talking about cutting folks open, it's not me, right? You understand my point. Use the abilities and talents that you have. But that leads us to the last part, which is networking. If you can't take care of a need, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with being able to say, you know what, I can't help you with that. But maybe I know someone who can. Let me see if this other person has some time to talk with you or has the ability to help you. Next, we need to help those in the church with real needs. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, whoever does this to one of these brothers of mine, Galatians chapter 6, help those in need. When you have an opportunity, help those in need, especially those of the household of God. And so we ought to look in the church, and when we see folks that need help, we need to help them. Now, here's the kicker. In my experience in the church, there are people that need help, and they don't know really know. It's embarrassing. Nobody knows how to ask the right way. Or they, they think there's a right way to ask, and they don't know what that is. Let me say it that way. Sometimes we just need to observe and be willing to help. And then the last thing. Be, have an eye out for those outside the church. Here's how churches like to do benevolence traditionally. Somebody walks in the door, let me write you a check. I don't know who you are, where you're going, what you're going to do with this, but let's, let me write you a check. I don't know that matches what we saw with the biblical limitations on, <coughs> on helping. Here's what works better. <clears throat> Somebody you work with. Somebody you go to school with. Someone in your community. Somebody you know of has a real need. Their house just burnt down. They have a sudden medical need. And it's something that you are earnestly and authentically aware of. Bring that to the church and say, hey, here's an opportunity we have to serve somebody. Or if it's something you can do on your own, do it on your own. Nobody needs to have an inventory list of who's done what for whom. But as Christians, we ought to be ready to do that. You know, my grandfather, I think, was way off base when he told me years and years ago, over and over and over again, hey, it's your job to make everyone smile. No, it's not. But biblically, as a Christian, maybe I can help somebody smile for a moment when they're going through a crisis or they have a real need, if I'm prepared and ready to step in and help them with that need. Jesus says, that's what I want you to do. Even to his own disciples, he says, this is a criteria of judgment. Not how many sermons you preached, not how many people you you brought to the Lord, but were you willing to help? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to become united with Christ in baptism, being united in His death, burial, and resurrection, or maybe you have some other need. Whatever your need, once you come Let's together, we stand and sing. Is it on? Is the wand on? There we go. God is so good. God is so good.